Welcome to episode number 29 of the Plant Powered Radio podcast series. I'm your host, Janine Bancroft. On today's show from California, Jennifer Molidor. Jennifer Molidor is senior food campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity, helping to lead the sustainable food initiatives, including the Take Extinction Off Your Plate campaign. She drives the population and sustainability programs, earth-friendly diet initiatives related to industrial animal agriculture, overpopulation and overconsumption, and the impact of our food systems on wildlife and the planet. Before joining the center in 2015, Jennifer worked on a number of food, wildlife and environmental campaigns as a staff writer for the Animal Legal Defense Fund. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame and taught for many years as a professor at Kansas State University and San Francisco State University. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, And so I always like to start by hearing people's vegan story. I'm assuming you weren't born vegan. I'm wondering how did you find veganism and how has that influenced your life? Yeah, so I became a vegetarian, actually, once I became an adult and could shop for myself and cook for myself. And I did that for animal welfare reasons. I'd always loved animals. And I sort of made myself look at slaughterhouse pictures. And I thought, if you can eat meat after this, then that's that. But um, I, of course, couldn't. So I started that being vegetarian. And I went that route for many, many years. I lived in the Midwest, which was hard being a vegetarian. Um, but I survived and it wasn't until I joined the Animal Legal Defense Fund um, doing that work where I saw more systematically the exploitation of animals and understood how dairy harms animals as well that I went vegan. So for some reason that just didn't click with me and I'm glad that it finally did. Um, yeah, so like many people, I'm a, I'm a nature lover and I love being outside. I love wild places, I love animals um, and it just, seemed uh, seems wrong to contribute to the cruelty and the degradation of the planet. Right. They would like to hope that once we understand our, our role in things, we can shift gears and try to remove ourselves from that as much as possible. Luckily, it's easier now than ever, and more people are flocking to it, it seems. So mm-hmm. there's a hope. That's where I find hope for sure. And so the Center Biologic- for Biological Diversity, um, how did you end up there and what is it? So the Center for Biological Diversity is an international conservation nonprofit. We have nearly 2 million members and supporters, and we do legal work, science, and creative advocacy. And that's the area where I come in, the creative advocacy. Um, And we aim to make the planet more livable for humans and wildlife together. And then I run the Take Extinction Off Your Plate campaign, which is a mouthful, as is Center for Biological Diversity, (laughs) So um, I run that campaign and it started in about 2014. And the center was noticing that very few environmental organizations were making a really bold campaign that connected food and the climate, diet and climate, food and biodiversity, basically food production and wildlife impacts. Um, So, you know, the center wanted to take a bold stance on that and five, six years later, now a lot of environmental groups are moving towards that. that so that's great, you know, um, to focus on basically consumer campaigns, individual solutions, but also systemic solutions. And I think that we need both. And it's really important to emphasize both 
So that's kind of the overview of, of the work that I want to do. And just really the thing for me is um, a lot of people don't make the connection between their diet and wildlife. So people who are starting to come on board, as you were mentioning, uh, to the to the connection between what they're eating in their food and how it's hurting farmed animals, for example, might have difficulty going that step further and understanding how, the, how eating a pig or a cow could hurt a wild animal that they might also love. So I really want to help people make that connection and see how everything is interrelated. Right. Yeah. Um, so the systemic um, changes that you, that you speak about and, and the personal changes, this is an interesting conversation that I've had with environmentalists through the years who haven't made the leap necessarily and kind of point to, well, you know, big oil and gas and we need to change governments and policies and laws. And uh, I agree, like, I agree, we do need to change that. But I also really, I really enjoy taking the personal, you know, really seriously, all the different things that I can do, including the food choice, which it turns out is actually the most important and biggest thing, most powerful thing we can do. And it seems to me that the more, you know, if we had vegans in those places of decision-making, it, it's just a, it's just an automatic, uh, what something that they would automatically advocate for, right? Like, it seems to me it would be difficult to advocate for, um, you know, a food, uh, a plant-based food um, situation if you're, if you're not living that yourself. Not necessarily. I think that it's really important to, work on and lead personal change. You know, I, I think I influence people just by um, being passionate about what I'm passionate about. And I, I certainly make a difference with my own diet. I mean, it's, the, it's one of the few things that you can do immediately. You can immediately make a difference for animals and for the environment with your diet three times a day. There's no question. Um, but I think it's also really important to get policy in there that reinforces that and makes it a lot easier for people who can't do it quite so easily as, as others can. So for example, getting municipal policies um, or state policies or federal policies that help procurement, um, that direct the budget of a city or a state or um, the government uh, federally towards less meat, more plants or an all plant menu. Um, just kind of normalizing it so that people are going to these places to eat and they're they're getting the food and they're encouraged in the dietary guidelines, for example, just as a normalization, not even necessarily as vegan, but just this is what a sustainable diet is or a humane diet, an ethical diet. This is what we're eating. This is better for the planet. This is normal. And we're going to shift our food policies that way. And so that way, some people who might even be more resistant, um, it's just kind of a no brainer and it takes the decision-making um, burden off of them necessarily. And they're getting more access to healthy, sustainable food, which a lot of people in the country don't have. A lot of people don't have access to food, period. And a lot of people certainly don't have access to healthy and sustainable food. And for example, you know, we could shift subsidies. We could stop subsidizing the meat industry, which is a big polluting industry. And we could um, instead shift subsidies to help farmers grow produce, you know, fruits and vegetables. Currently, the US dietary guidelines recommends a certain amount of servings for the average American adult for fruits and vegetables. We don't produce enough 
in the United States to meet that requirement. On the other hand, the dietary guidelines is pointing out that men in particular are eating too much red meat. Meanwhile, we're subsidizing that industry. So those policies don't make sense. And we need to sort of combine our individual choices with systemic change that makes it easier to do that because I'd like to choose to eat a, a certain diet that's better for the planet and more humane for animals. But if it's not accessible, then it's not going to work. Right. Yeah. And part of your campaigning is about um, food justice. So it sounds like that's what we're talking about here is the ability of communities to have access to food and some do and some don't. And I know some people call that um, food apartheid where there's just some areas, low income areas that just don't have access. And I'm, I'm interested in, in maybe hearing about how this is, is grounded in colonialism this whole uh, situation that we find ourselves in regarding food justice. There's a lot of groups out there that are doing food justice work and they have been for decades. And so I don't want to take the spotlight away from that. We are not in itself a food justice organization, but in the last year and really even before that, we've been trying to support the work that others are doing and we are taking on that work itself. I think this last year has really showed people that should have probably known this already, um, that food justice and environmental justice is an integral part of environmental work and really social justice broadly. Um, social justice is food justice, food justice is climate justice, and so on. These are all interrelated um, struggles and, and efforts and campaigns and they need to be. So we're trying to take that on more, more seriously. And the link between colonialism, um, white supremacy has become more clear. And the fact that native communities all over the country, for example, live hours away from supermarkets, don't have access to running water sometimes um, or healthy, sustainable food or their traditional food ways um, is just one example of that. And this is not even just because of centuries of, um, of colonial policies. This is because of recent colonial policies, right? So if we're damming rivers and they're not being able to fish their native foodways um, or losing seeds, losing land and the impact of climate change on the land that they live on, um, yeah, so the food sovereignty is out the window, um, food access is out the window. Similarly, people in urban environments, also food insecure, um, can't have access to affordable, healthy, sustainable food. You know, their, their nearest food source is a convenience store. And um, statistically, this has shown that people of color, by and large, don't have access to healthy, sustainable food. This is not um, accidental at all. And the way that people of color are connected to the food system tells the story, I think, in really interesting ways and horrible ways. So people of color, for example, are more likely to work in slaughterhouses in the meatpacking industry. Why? And Why is that? Um, <laughs> well, there's many, that's a complicated question why that is, but they're more likely to work in that industry. They're more likely to be physically harmed, to experience a psychological trauma. They're more likely to be poisoned in the fields by working in fields with pesticides. They're more likely to earn unlivable wages and have no health care. 
On top of all that, they're more likely to be harmed by environmental um, toxins from the production of all agriculture. Um, and on top of that, they're also um, the least likely to have access to healthy, sustainable food or own land. And so all of that combined creates uh, a very broken food system and a very broken social system within our country. Right. There's a move in Canada. I don't know if it's the same there to try to introduce um, prison labor into animal agriculture, slaughter and houses and that sort of thing. And I've heard that in the States, I heard one person mentioned that, you know, if you're if you're coming out of jail and you're on probation or whatever, and you have to get a job to prove that you're fitting into society and often a slaughterhouse is one of the only places that will hire you. So there's major problems there too, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, the prison labor is, is used in agriculture now and firefighting and um, for very little money. And um, it's just awful. It's essentially an extension of slavery. It's how they get around slavery um, prohibition and, and continue that system. And it's just really terrible. And that's really why land ownership is so crucial and reparations are so crucial. You know, one way to focus on that, for example, Cory Booker's introducing the Justice for Black Farmers Act. We need to support that. We need reparations through, you know, economically, we need it through land ownership. The land has been stolen from Black and Indigenous, Latino and Asian people, people of color widely, um, stolen labor. We need economic reparations for sure. Um, and we need to support the, the organizations that are really doing that work on the ground. I recommend, for example, the um, Just Food, um, the National Black Farmers Association, the Food Empowerment Project. Many, many groups are doing these important uh, representations and just sort of helping people get involved in their communities. But on a wider scale, also the USDA in our country down here, it completely needs to be overhauled with um, environmental and economic justice reparations for particularly black farmers um, in mind, because there's substantial evidence, I mean, just conclusive, that the USDA has been sort of sneakily um, harming black farmers and preventing the growth of black farmers. I think they're down from something like a million and a half to 35,000 black farmers now. So working on the USDA is really important as well. Can, can you explain how they're doing that? Um, over the, well, over the past decades, they, they just, um, through price incentives, through grants, through bank loans, um, just a completely unequal system where whites, of course, are, are more likely to get more land, more loans, um, more grants, and, and so on. And when the USDA was um, uh, ordered to, to make some reparations to the ag community, they consistently didn't pay it back to black farmers. So just um, sort of limitless assault on people of color. Hmm. Okay, and so you mentioned that that um, the organization that you're working with and the campaigns are international in scope. So is this a common theme uh, around the world or is that a different area? You were talking, I think about wildlife perhaps in that regard. Yeah, we're, we're sort of making connections with um, organizations that are involved with work in the global south. But in, in food models, when I talk about what we need for the food system, I want to be clear that it's really for the global north. Um, there's solutions that are different for the global south. So as an organization, we're kind of spreading out internationally. 
Mexico and Canada and, and so on. But uh, my work is focused on the United States. I, I think we have enough on our hands to deal with just here. Right. Well, and watching what's happening in Bolivia and Ecuador, I'm thinking maybe maybe they should start exporting their democracy now because they've <laughs> actually got some good things going on in the global south. And and so, are you incorporating, um, you know, indigenous people? Are you consulting with them? And because you know they have that history still in in their memory, I would think. I think it's really important that we do that. And so last summer I organized a food justice film festival and I'm gonna be doing that again this year um, where we're showing movies and interviewing activists and community advocates um, from, from all over the food um, industry, um, indigenous groups, um, black urban farmers, Latino farmers, um, representatives and so on. So yeah, definitely. And right now there's sort of, um, farming practices, for example, regenerative practices that are sort of co-opting traditional indigenous ways of growing food uh, without recognition. So I think it's, it's absolutely imperative that widely we look at the models of indigenous peoples and their food ways and, and rethink our own. Um, you know, I think, what is it? Indigenous peoples are coexisting with 80% of our planets, biodiversity, something like that. It's really imperative that we protect indigenous peoples and their ways of life and the biodiversity that they live with. Absolutely, we can be allies in, in their struggles for sure. And we definitely should be. So uh, regenerative agriculture, that, that seems to be a real buzzword these days. And um, people can think about that, it seems like in, in two ways, either as plant-based regenerative agriculture or animal-based. And it, I, it's a little bit confusing in my brain right now. Can you, can you clarify what all that's about? I think it's confusing for most people. Oh, good. Okay. Intentionally. So to some, oh, no. I think that regenerative animal ag has sort of co-opted the plant-based um, regenerative agriculture and the veganic um, plant-based uh, agriculture. So it is trendy. Um, and it's one of these solutions that in, isn't bad in and of itself. Um, of course, we want to have, you know, production principles that are more coexistent with biodiversity around us and sequester carbon and all that. But in terms of the science, um, some of it is really overblown. Some of it, it doesn't exist. Um, some of it lacks long-term studies. And often they'll just focus on, for example, sequestering carbon. That's their big focus. They're going to save the planet with the soil and sequestering carbon, you know, which can be done better in other ways. But the, the, the main point is that they don't advocate enough for reducing scale. None of the things that they're talking about um, in terms of, for example, beef production, um, cows on the land, none of the ways that they're trying to make it a little better to have the cows on the land, um, you know, lower emission feed, for example, you know, lower methane producing uh, lemongrass feed, for example, things like this. Um, hooves on the ground, tilling up the land, none of it is going to have the impact that they want to have on the planet or that we need to have on the planet unless we massively scale down production of beef in particular. So they kind of leave that part out of the equation out of all of these conversations. You know, maybe they, they might admit it here and there, but um, it's fundamental. You know, we don't have the land to scale up these regenerative practices. 
we don't have the time climate wise, we don't have the time biodiversity wise and wildlife wise, you know? And so to me, it seems like a way of using something that is not bad in and of itself, but using it to greenwash cattle grazing and beef production. And it's coming from the industry and it's, it's very common um, with the fossil fuel industry as well, where they're talking about carbon storage and offsets and that kind of thing, rather than just producing less emissions. And that's the thing that we need to do with beef is we need to have less cows. We need to produce less beef. There's no way to, to meet these goals without massive uh, scaling down of beef production. So for example, the research that we work with, we call for a 90% reduction in beef production. It's massive. We eat way too much. Um, some land studies have shown that even if we switched all to like a grass-fed system, we could only produce 27% of the beef that we produce in the United States right now. And so, you know, that means obviously factory farms are going to have to go. Um, intensified, cruel, horrific uh, animal agriculture in that farm has to go. But also, we just need to scale it back. We cannot continue to produce this much beef. And so my hackles get up at the, the lack of science, the ignoring of biodiversity, because it's all about climate and carbon, um, and, and the lack of admitting that this has to be scaled down massively. And so it's not bad in and of itself. I would obviously prefer that we have the best regenerative practices, that we integrate indigenous food ways, but you can't get around the fact that we have to eat less meat particularly beef. And I think that some people are using this movement to get around that. And I think that's true of the local movement as well. People will say, well, uh, all I have to do is just sort of know the livestock producer, know where my meat comes from. And that's not really true. That's had like a lot, as much as regenerative, right? That's got a lot of um, trending and, and attention to it because there's something absolutely to be said about community-based agriculture and um, and not these wide scale agricultural systems, but that's better for plants. For meat, meat is so toxic for the environment in terms of emissions and, and other harms, um, polluting our waterways and so forth, that the local aspect doesn't even really improve it. I mean, you could have a factory farm in your backyard, um, much in the way that I do, and that doesn't make it better just because it's local, but also um, the food miles, the transportation, for example, are really a very small amount of um, the, the emissions for producing meat and beef in particular. So vegans can take heart in that, I think. Um, it, it makes a big difference. Of course, eating local is also good, organic, regenerative, all this, but getting meat out is the best thing that people can do for the planet. Sometimes I think people forget that we're living on a planet with seven and a half billion people and, and growing uh, numbers all the time. And so it's, it's simply not possible. It's something like a third of the earth right now is used for just pr producing animals for food, right? So it's really just not possible. It becomes a very elitist thing, I think, to think that we can all just eat from our local backyard animals it's simply not possible it's not possible for most people most people live in urban suburban areas and it isn't possible to meet our meat to so to speak but also people going out in the country talking to their ranchers they don't know what to ask they don't know how to measure environmental regulations and laws and water pollution toxic and stuff like that so there's just this meat this myth that 
eating local will change everything. It's really important to be able to grow your own food. Food access is very important for equity. I want to grow my own food. I support a community regenerative agriculture for plant-based food. Um, so all that's important. But, you know, like I said, we, we just, we seem to go to elaborate lengths as a society to do anything we possibly can, but reduce our meat consumption. So we are addicts is what we are. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. We have a meat addiction for sure. Right. Yeah. Part of that, you know, is they pose veganism as a sort of privileged white thing. And I don't think that's true at all because many cultures have plant-based recipes as part of their diet as their cultural tradition. They just may not, you know, know about it. Um, Invisible vegan, for example, does a really interesting job about talking about African traditions um, and, and the changes in diet there and the, the impact of health um, on the lack of access to healthy food uh, for the black community, but just widespread, you know, we're subsidizing meat. That's why it's cheap. If we shifted those subsidies again, so that plant-based food was just available to everybody, you know, it would make a big difference in every single way. So right. yeah, I, I think that's a myth. Um, there is some connection with it, with organic movements and, and things like that. But when it comes to eating plant-based food, that's, that's the, the salt of the earth. Sure. It's just simple. And, and um, the blue zones, right. Are a good example too, of um, low animal consumption, healthy areas, and mostly in like the Mediterranean, Asia and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But, you know, they've all been flooded with the fast food uh, industry. And so their, their health is changing and their, it's all changing. So, um, I'm, I'm curious about then what are kind of some of the basics of regenerative, regenerative plant-based, like veganic agriculture? Is that where we think about the three sisters, the beans, corn, and rice? Uh, is that part of that? Um, not necessarily it can oh. be, but, um, and then that's the problem is, for example, grass-fed beef, there, there's the American Grass-Fed Association, but other than that, there's no real standard for what that is there's no certification and there's no real regulation. So people could be getting a grass fed burger for $14 or something, and it could be corn finished, or maybe it was supplemented with irrigated crops or something like that. So the same is true for regenerative agriculture. I wanna know what the definition is of regenerative agriculture and what the definition is of biodiversity and ecosystems that they're using because it isn't clear. And it seems to me like everyone's using it differently. So one of the things I'm working on this week, actually, is I'm creating those definitions and I'm going to expect the industry to live up to those. So it's clear because when I reach out to talk to these people, um, either the ag industry scientists or the farmers themselves uh, who are really excited about this, this is kind of almost evangelical about how how excited they are about these movements. uh, They can't define those things for me. So it, it differs in, in terms of what regenerative agriculture is, even in the plant-based version, but its principles are protecting biodiversity, growing cover crops, no-till, or, you know, organic, um, living in, in a way in which the ecosystem thrives. It's just no definition of what that means, for example. So a lot of people will say, I have a pasture and my cow grazes on it and there's some birds and some grass and plants. And so therefore we're biodiverse and it's fine. And that is not an intact ecosystem. Um, that is not preserving the natural habitat for the wildlife in that area, you know, especially if they also 
um, shoot the wolves or coyotes who prey there or the prairie dogs and, and things like that. So yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. But for me, the best principles are living in harmony with nature and the natural world. And that really, it has to be part of this. That really includes scaling down. It can't be just limitless expansion of production every square inch of the planet that cannot be called regenerative agriculture. Right. Yeah. And you've written a lot about um, wild animals. So let's talk about about those guys. So, you know, it seems like you know a lot about what's going on with what's called predator control and the involvement of wildlife services and uh, all of that whole picture. Can, can you tell us what's happening to the, to the wild animals as we increasingly take over land for grazing and such things? Yeah, so wildlife services across the board, I think, gets people stirred up because it's a federal program and it's called a rogue program by some people, journalists doing investigations, because it really has very little oversight and reporting. And what it does is it pays locals in some cases to report on or take care of um, problems with cattle conflicts with uh, wildlife. And so these people, folks will come in and look at their, their money to kill these wild animals, um, mostly for the livestock industry, sometimes for the other industries as well. And just massive, just millions of animals that they're killing. And one of the conflicts is that these are the same people in the same community as the livestock operators. Their kids go to school together, maybe their cousin, <laughs> their friend, their neighbor. Um, it's the same community. And so there's motivation for them to misreport and to not report. So out in rural communities, many people will know there's a policy called shoot, shovel, and shut up. And that's how they take care of their wildlife quote unquote problem um, in terms of their livestock um, conflict. And really it's their livestock creating the conflict, right? So that program is rogue. Its employees have been investigated for um, severe animal cruelty. Its tactics in different states use um, environmentally horrific um, poisoning and, and cyanide bombs and things like that that are outlawed in other states. So it's just this awful program. The more anybody will look into wildlife services, I can't imagine how you would um, support it. So the best livestock operators are using what we call non-lethal predator control. And this involves work. It involves effort. Um, it involves changing your system, but it really is better for everybody. And I think we need support for this more as well. Um, we've had support for like reparations for livestock operators who've lost uh, livestock and they would get kind of financial reparations that way. And they're, it really was shown not to reduce any of the animosity towards wildlife. So that really isn't the way. So the best practices that have shown to work involve range riders. And these are people who ride around and, and help protect the livestock. Other flattery um, strategies deter Wildlife, for example, fencing. Fencing is not always possible, so enclosures for the livestock, um, lights, flags, sounds, things like this. One of the best things you can do, besides range riders, is um, clearing up your boneyard, right? So if you go camping, for example, and you leave a bunch of food out on the table, you're not going to be surprised if a bear comes along, right? And you wouldn't really blame the bear. Um, so 
these livestock operators need to clean up their boneyards because they're attracting wildlife. But range riders are also really important too. The problem is range riding is hard. You need skill and training to do it properly. And right now there's no standard. So we'd really like to see um, a standard of what range riding entails and means and what they're responsible for and, and kind of encourage um, livestock operators to have these range riders and require it. So I think that's, that's one of the solutions. Um, but just the, the principle and practice of, if you're gonna be raising you know, farmed animals, you need to do it in a way that's not massacring every wild animal in sight. And um, that's a real problem right now. So there's really not a lot of oversight, it sounds like. And has Wildlife Services, is what is that one of the agencies that's just been cut the last four years? Or is that an ongoing problem into previous administrations as well? The Wildlife Services has a long history. Um, long, long time ago, decades ago, it was the animal damage control, but itself as a federal program has existed for decades. And it is it is rogue. It is the, the fox guarding the hen house, so to speak, or maybe reverse, but um, is the collusion between the, um, this agency and industry that is just devastating. And our organization has been one of um, many in the coalition that has been filing lawsuits left and right against this program or the use of its program, the use of taxpayer dollars in, um, in counties and states all over the country in the US because they're required to conduct environmental reviews and they haven't been doing that. Um, and, and they're using basically taxpayer funds to, to slaughter wildlife en masse and, and they're normalizing that. And it just, it doesn't need to be done. If, if we can show that non-lethal um, predator control, for example, reduces the conflict with cattle and livestock, then that's what we need to do. That's the solution. Uh, that's the protection for habitats. And really it helps I think reduce the animosity of livestock operators as well and, and just has a thriving community. It's a very expensive, this taxpayer funds could be used differently. Well, those subsidies that you were mentioning could redirect that into some jobs that are actually- Yeah, where they could pay for the range riders, you know, rather than paying right. for people to slaughter the animals, we could pay for range riders. Right, and so for people who are just afraid of wildlife and would, you know, can't really understand why do we even want to protect them in the first place? What do you say to those people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say look around wherever you are at the natural world that you may take for uh, granted and, and think about how much you appreciate that. So even people live in urban environments, they might appreciate um, birds or little creatures in the park and that kind of thing. And I think it's really important for um, I think we crave for it. I think it's really important, really important for our well-being. I think to have a connection with the natural world, and there's several ways to look at it. You know, wild animals are important in and of themselves, with no relationship to humans. Just being there, you know, something like four percent of our entire planet is wild animals now, and so it's all become either humans or livestock. And that has an impact on the planet. So they exist for their, their own right. They're important and valuable for their own right um, as are wild places and public lands. But on the other hand, biodiversity or um, you know, uh, intact ecosystems and habitats with a variety of wild animals that is natural 
is also important for humans. I think people don't realize that bees and butterflies, people are so upset about bees and butterflies declining because we can't grow food without bees and butterflies. We can't grow food without pollinators. You know, um, the loss of biodiversity impacts our climate and vice versa. And it impacts our food security, our ability to grow food. And that's gonna be changing dramatically and drastically as climate change impacts us more and more over the coming decades and it's going to. And um, we're having a mass species extinction crisis right now. So caring about other people is important for our society. Caring about people that have nothing to do with us is important for our society. And it's also important to care about animals that have nothing to do with us, not only for our own sake, but for theirs. Right. And some of the animals that sometimes we forget about too, I think are the fishes. And so, you know, there's, there's net fishing and, and then there's fish farms. Um, would you describe, is there any such thing as sustainable fishing? And, and what do you have to say about these different forms of fishing? Yeah. So fishing isn't really the area that I focus on in my own work too much, but I have addressed food waste. So uh, a massive amount, something like some studies say half of the seafood um, we, we collect is wasted and it includes bycatch. And so that's my most important thing is a lot of the sustainable quote unquote companies um, and grocery stores are saying, oh, we, we're, we're only selling sustainable fish. And these um, certification bodies that call themselves quote unquote sustainable and yet they don't have any policy for bycatch. And bycatch is when you catch um, non-target species, whales, turtles, any manner of marine life just for your fishing industry. And it's hard to imagine how you can consider that sustainable on that mass scale. And then there's, of course, in the fishing industry, ethical human, human rights concerns and things like that. So the scale of our production and consumption is really beyond what can possibly can be considered um, sustainable. 80% of fish stocks are also either fully exploited, overexploited, or have collapsed. And fishing is set to grow expansively, um, I think by 35 million tons in the next nine years or so. Why? So, <laughs> so no is the answer right well, now. I'm right surprised now. to hear that it's, it's, it's slated to grow. What, what's that about? Um, I don't know. I don't know why people want to eat more fish. And it isn't just because some communities survive on that. And those are certainly not the people that I'm talking about, the indigenous communities that survive on fish. It is the people all over the planet. It's the people all over North America who live in areas where fishing is, is not happening. And it's not something that is native to their environment. And it's shipped from all over. And that demand is out of control. Um, hmm. Exploiting the seas for those who live in the prairies, for example, um, maybe fish should, should not be part of your diet. So maybe people are shifting away from beef and chicken or something, and they're they're picking on fish instead, something like that. I don't know. Um, possible. The studies I've shown said people are moving from beef to chicken for sure, but um, I, I'm not sure that the seafood, I think the seafood expansion is because of the expansion of the global population. Huh. Okay, well, there's lots of great alternatives, plant-based alternatives that um, are very delicious and yummy and healthy. And so you mentioned that fishing and the bycatch is part, uh, is one category of food waste. We just have a few minutes left, but 
what else should we know about food waste? Because that, that, that's a huge thing that we need to deal with too, right? Hmm. I think if I was going to emphasize anything in terms of food waste, and you know, one of the things that really riled me up these days about everything across the board, I hope that you've noticed that I've focused on this, is greenwashing, right? So greenwashing in sustainable food, greenwashing in regenerative beef, you know, all these kinds of things where they're picking up on our desire to live more in harmony with the planet and less exploitively, but they're not actually changing. And that's changing, but that's not actually changing because we're not reducing production. So solutions to food waste kind of fall along that line historically as well, right? So we focused on compost or food donations. So you might get grocery stores, for example, I've written some reports about this that measure how much food waste they send to um, hunger programs, donation programs, or compost or recycle, but they don't measure or report how much waste they produce overall, right? So tracking that is one important thing. The commitment to producing zero waste is really crucial. Refed just came out with a report recently that I think matches what I've been arguing for a few years. Refed is really great for this if you want to look into this. But the idea is that preventing food waste is the key, right? Not just redistributing it. Because once you've created the environmental harm by producing the food in the first place, you've created that environmental harm. It's a secondary harm to send it to the landfill. So if you can prevent food waste, you're preventing the environmental harm of producing it and the landfill. Um, so I think going from farm to table all the way back to the farm and you know, uh, through the supply chain, preventing food waste for households, for restaurants, for grocery stores, for suppliers, for everybody. We have to think about the environmental cost of food production and, and get smarter about um, how we're shopping and how we're eating out and how we're purchasing and ordering food. Um, another example is in schools, for example, in the United States, we have this requirement that all kids need to have milk. And in my study of schools, that's the number one wasted food item, liquid waste milk. So that guideline, that requirement to have dairy products there, which are um, significantly racist in, in many ways, since that it has um, scientifically uh, impacted black communities, black students differently. That requirement is an environmental harm, right? It leads to food waste. It leads to the harm of producing dairy in the first place. It leads to the secondary harm of wasting the food and so on. So there's lots of things that we could do to fight food waste. Um, it's an enormous problem. 30 to 40% of the food that we produce is wasted, something like that. And the best way is to actually prevent it. Then you can recycle and compost and donate. Right. Well, it seems interesting that there's there's all this food waste on the one hand, and then there's these food apartheid areas or food deserts on the other hand. Is there yeah. some way to just it's 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 part is that part of what you're working with? Yeah, you know, we produce enough food to feed everybody. There's no reason that justifies anybody starving or being food insecure or having an insecure food system or not having access to healthy food. Um, there's absolutely no justification. We need to shift our priorities. We need to shift our social justice, honestly. I don't think this is accidental that these companies and industries harm people of color differently um, or animals or the environment and so on. So we really need to restructure the food system so that it is resilient and sustainable and fair and equal and just and humane. 
Well, and you, your, the website ha- at Take Extinction Off Your Plate has a whole list of company or organizations that you're working mm-hmm. with. It sounds mm-hmm. like it's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, well, thank you for all of this. Is there anything, Jennifer, that you want to say as we close? Um, donate healthy food to your food bank. Um, go vegan and check out TakeExtinctionOffYourPlate.com. We're revamping it for April, so it'll look nicer soon. But um, yeah, reach out to me at Earth friendly diet at biologicaldiversity.org with any questions or find me on Twitter. My guest today was California-based Jennifer Molador. You can find more plant-powered radio by visiting us on YouTube and by subscribing to this podcast for regular updates. Please be safe and considerate towards all species. And thanks so much for listening. encircles the earth for all beings everywhere.